Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. Over the past decade, app-based services like Uber have played an ever greater part of life in UK cities. More and more people are relying on gig work. Driving cars, delivering food, putting up shelves, doing domestic work and sex work, all kinds of services are now sold through apps and online platforms. The work is notorious for its shoddy pay and conditions, and lots of this work is done by migrant workers and British people of colour. According to writer and academic Dahlia Gabriel, this is no coincidence. Dahlia is a PhD researcher at the London School of Economics, and she's also a co-host of Tiski Sour here at Navarra Media. Her research explores what she calls racial platform capitalism, the idea that race is essential to the business models of Uber and other platforms like it. In other words, the success of platforms is less about the innovations made in Silicon Valley and more about the violence meted out at the border, the prison and the benefits office. We talked about the legacies of empire and how they are shaping the future of work. Dahlia, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The full title of your most recent paper is Racial Platform Capitalism, Empire and the Making of Uber in London. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what we mean when we say platform capitalism. The term platform capitalism is coined by Nick Cernick, who wrote a book called that. And what he is referring to there is essentially a networked economy. Um, So we're talking about economic exchange that takes place through and alongside digital infrastructures known as platforms. And so that can encompass so many different things. It can encompass click work or crowd work. So examples of that would be like the Amazon Mechanical Turk. Um, It can refer to the kind of crowd work model where you have um, data entry kind of tasks being done you know, headquartered in the kind of typical offshoring model, you have like the central CEO or kind of like central offices of a company in typically in the global north and the, the what kind of are often like factories or call centers in the global south. This is work that takes place through a platform. The element of the platform economy that or platform capitalism that I'm interested in is work on demand via apps. So here we're talking about work that is organized through geolocative apps. So when you're using Uber, when you're using Deliveroo, you're essentially hiring a worker that is in close proximity to you on demand. Um, and so that's what we mean um, by platform capitalism. And so it refers to a kind of structural shift um, rather than a individual set of innovations. So your work is an intervention in the way that we usually talk about how these platforms and platformization comes along to try and resolve the crises in the labour market that we arrive at after the economic crash of 2008. So could you tell us a little bit about the usual stories that we tell about that? So there are kind of two stories here that I'm trying to intervene in. There's the kind of dominant Silicon Valley story, which is this idea that, you know, we have the the economic crisis of 2008, which obviously causes huge amounts of unemployment and that digital platforms are a kind of 
lean and low investment way of giving people uh, job opportunities, right? And this is a technological innovation. It is um, as well as a kind of business model innovation. And it comes in and it's essentially a almost like a silver bullet to the economic, the unemployment crisis that follows the 2008 financial crash. And then we have the kind of dominant story that is told in political economic circles um, and including by kind of Marxist uh, critics of the platform economy who are wholly correct in their understanding of uh, platformization as essentially a new, as, as essentially continuing a longer historical trajectory of breaking down the um, social contract governing labor um, and precaritization of work. But the intervention that I am making is essentially instead of saying we had this standard employment contract that was hegemonic everywhere and it is being uh it's being undermined by neoliberalism my intervention was essentially that the standard employment contract was only ever accessible for a very small minority of the world's workforce at a very specific historical moment and that what we're actually seeing is an expansion upwards through platformization of this of, of precarious and irregular models of work and in a lot of these marxist and political economic accounts whilst they're like very correct in their kind of capturing of the systemic underlying factors that drive platformization they essentially the fact that all of these workers do tend to be racially minoritized or migrants um often these two things obviously overlap seems to be to them is treated often as a kind of footnote, as a kind of incidental thing um, that, that accompanies platformization. Whereas my argument is essentially that the fact that they are marginalized, you know, racially minoritized and migrant workers is a central organizing principle and a central feature of how the platform economy is unfolding. Um, and that in order to understand why and how the platform economy is unfolding in the way that it is and, and bringing alongside it, you know, very particular, very exploitative and shoddy models of employment, as you, as you outlined, um, is directly connected to the fact that it is a model that is developing in workforces that have been historically migrant and racially minoritized. Let's talk a little bit more about the detail of that social contract and how um, precarity is seen as a rupture of what we, <laughs> for a given value of we, um, have been trained to expect mm. from a workplace. There's many different things here. So there's the kind of legal entity of the employee, which is a someone who is entitled to a pension, who is entitled to sick pay, parental leave, um, who essentially is someone who is understood to be someone who might get sick, who might have a child, who might have an elderly relative that they want to take care of, who might themselves get old at some point and need to be looked after in old age. Um, and that's essentially the, the fundamental premise is that the employer should cover that essentially and that the employer should be 
should recognise and be responsible for those those needs. And then there's the other element that comes with the standard employment model that I think is also disrupted by the the platform model. Um, and not only by the platform model, it has historically, as I said, you know, this model of employment has not been available for the vast majority of the world's workforce. But it's also a, a particular kind of spatial dynamic and dynamic of political identity. So if we think, for example, about the traditional understanding of what workplace organizing is, it involves, you know, a shop floor, it involves a fixed working place, a fixed concept of working time. Um, the idea of whether or not this person is a worker is not under question. What's the, que the question is, how do we organize them? Um, but with platform workers and with this sort of these these groups of people that have this very complicated relationship to the category of work. They don't have a fixed workplace. They don't have fixed ideas of working time. And even their conceptualization of themselves as a worker can be unstable at times, you know, not only because they are in and out of work, but also because they, especially with these platforms, the kind of cultural story that that accompanies them is this idea that you're not a worker, you're your own boss or you're an entrepreneur. And so what we're talking about here is organizational and spatial as well as legal obfuscation of the labor process that platforms as a legal and cultural entity um, are essentially able to, to maneuver through. One of your key case studies is, of course, uh, the making of Uber in London. And you note the radically different racial demographics of Uber drivers as opposed to traditional black cab drivers. So what's going on there? There's always historically been a, a racial division of labour in the taxi economy, I would say since about the 70s, when you, so the kind of like proper name as for black cab drivers is the kind of hackney carriage. Um, and so that was kind of the, was for a long time, the dominant method of taxi transportation. And then in the 70s, you have the development of minicabs, right? Um, and the main difference between these two entities is that black cabs can be hailed off the street um, and can solicit on the street, whereas minicabs have to be pre-booked. And then over time, at the beginning of minicabs, you had like very little licensing legislation. But over time, essentially, there is no difference in terms of, of licensing or background checks or anything that the threshold to enter both black cabbing and minicabbing is the same with the exception of obviously the black cabs take the knowledge. And minicabs have historically been dominated by South Asian and black men. So when we see deindustrialization in the 70s, we see many um, racialized minorities who had been working, for example, in textile factories and had been working in, in industry as a survival strategy shift to this kind of self-employment model um, of which minicabbing was, was really central. And so what Uber does is it comes along and essentially reorganizes and intervenes in that minicabbing industry. And so we often think about Uber as undercutting or as disrupting the black cab industry but actually that the the effect on the black cab industry has not been is not even comparable to the complete decimation of the minicab industry and with that it has reorganized that particular workforce that has historically dominated 
um, the minicab industry, which is largely South Asian men, but is also just a migrant industry in general. Um, and so when we see the kind of the differences that that entails, not only do we see a much, when you think about, you know, both of these until recently have been considered self-employed, but whereas black cabs actually are self-employed and that they're not very closely managed, it is very much a more conventional self-employment model. With Uber, what we see is self-employment, and this is until recently, until they won worker status, but it's important to remember that like this, this misclassification of workers was the model that Uber relied on for 10 years. And so just because it's been won in the courts doesn't mean it's not an important part of the story of how Uber became so big. But you have this, this model where for the purposes of worker rights, they are considered self-employed, which basically means no access to the rights that are associated with standard employment. But when it comes to how closely they are managed um, and how centrally organized they are, the closeness of that management actually typically exceeds that of a standard employment contract because the ability of the kind of surveillance technologies to kind of monitor the labor process at a very granular level allows them to be managed so closely. So you have that kind of difference in treatment in terms of the level of close management, but also on an urban planning level, there's a huge division in the treatment between black cabs and Uber drivers. So you have, for example, black cabs don't have to pay a bunch of fees, like they're exempt from the congestion charge, for example, whereas Uber drivers have to pay congestion charge every time they enter into into the congestion charge zone. There are 600 taxi ranks throughout the city for black cabs to park up, rest, have a piss, have a drink of coffee, you know, take a break. Uber drivers aren't allowed to use any of those ranks. And so you have a very overworked and very sort of like underserved workforce. And so what you see, and it happens along these racial lines, is a division not only on a on a corporate and business model and employment level, but on a urban planning level, a very inequitable distribution of resources as well as a wage differential. So that is the kind of like a historical dynamic that Uber is tapping into, but it is also exacerbating and deepening the racialized inequalities between those two sectors of the taxi economy. The link you draw between um, the demise of uh, textile factories and the fundamental reorganisation of minicab industries very much figures this story into the broader picture of deindustrialization, which is often talked about in terms which are coded white, mm-hmm. essentially. And when you loop that into the broader story, it becomes increasingly clear that, that there is this fundamental connection between how the platform fix hoovers up uh excess labor essentially uh, in in the market and how what you term the racial fix mm. plays a similar role. Could you talk to us more about that connection that you make between those two kinds of fixes? Yeah, so so the concept of of the racial fix is basically that taking racialization as a historic as a historically contingent process by which we mean it is not a fixed system of understanding. It's not a fixed logic. Who is racialized and how is very much dependent on the needs of capital. It's very much dependent on historical 
context and as well as geographic context. So the racial fix is basically an understanding that in the wake of crisis, when capital has to reorganize labor power in order to move through a crisis, racial lines are reorganized in order to enable capital to reorganize labor power in a way that is of interest to it. And so what we then see is that with the the um, the 2008 financial crisis, thinking so you can think about the racial fix, you can hold it in sort of one part of your head there. And then if you think about the platform fix as coming in, as you said, and sort of hoovering up people who have been expelled out of the system by the unemployment crisis, you have essentially like the lines around different parts of the working class being drawn through and alongside processes of racialization that usher certain parts of the working class into particular kinds of work. And so we see these two things dovetail. And obviously, you know, processes of racialization are always at play and always organizing the workforce. The idea of the racial fix is about keeping at the heart this idea that it's changing and it's mutable and it's adaptable. And essentially the argument is that the racial fix and the platform fix in the context of the 2008 financial crisis intersect. So you have platforms reorganizing labor power in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, and you have processes of racialization that are animate, being animated and reanimated by that crisis, enabling that process to happen more easily, right? And so if you think about, for example, the war on terror and its intensification around this era and the fact that this is a largely South Asian male, Muslim male workforce, you see a lot of the, the very close management and a lot of the, the disciplinary mechanisms that are used as labor management, as, as labor management principles essentially feed off and traffic off of the particular formations that around, you know, Muslim men that form in light of the war on terror. So this idea of like, oh, there's all these Muslim men who are now heavily mobile around the city um, and they need to be because they're working in taxis, but they also are a threat. They need to be managed. They need to be preemptively managed. They constitute risk. That dovetails very neatly with those methods of close data-driven management and surveillance um, that, that I outlined sort of, sort of earlier as central to the Uber model. So that's an example of how they can kind of dovetail towards one another. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that racial fix looks like in Uber's business model? Like how race and racism are fundamental to the way in which Uber makes money? Mm. Yeah, so I think here you have to kind of look at the sphere of, you know, media and culture and you look at how... Uber drivers are coded in the media. Um, and Uber drivers that I speak to are incredibly aware of this. They're coded as risks. They are coded as risks that need to be preemptively managed. And they're risks because of their cultural association with terrorism and their cultural association with sexual violence, which are kind of two, you know, Gargi Bhattacharya writes about this in her incredible book, Dangerous Brown Men, where she talks about sexualized violence and terroristic violence being the kind of constitute Muslim masculinity in the West. And when you look at that in the, the Uber model, 
that then creates a huge amount of space for justification of the level of surveillance and management and punishment that is involved and is central to the Uber model. And what, you know, what is central to the Uber model is a disposable workforce, a workforce that can be easily hired and fired, um, that can be, um, that can be algorithmically punished in a way that is not accountable or in a way that they don't have any legal recourse to address. So, you know, you can have someone who is permanently excluded from their main line of work, their main income, and they don't actually have rights in, in they don't have legal rights to a process to assess whether or not that was fair, right? And for me, that fungibility, that disposability is rooted in this idea that the people that are doing this work are dehumanized and therefore not entitled to the humanizing rights of a pension and parental leave and sick leave. And again, that acknowledgement that these are workers who are human beings who have human needs, like needing to have a break or needing to have, you know, having a child or having elderly relatives or having care needs or whatever, or care responsibilities. But it's also rooted in the idea that their close surveillance and punishment and discipline is necessary because this is a risky, threatening workforce. And so for me, that that racialization is coded not only into Uber's management algorithm, but also into the kind of legal entity of Uber as an as something that extracts value from workers like an employer, but is able to distance itself from the responsibilities that any that a conventional employer under British law would would have. Can you walk us through how that twin strategy of surveillance and hyper-availability helps um, keep Uber's costs low or rather helps put Uber's costs on the state and also the individual worker? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to put numbers on these things, but it's predicted that Uber saves up to 30% in, in labour costs by essentially having this management algorithm instead of a traditional system of management that isn't just about having human managers, but it's also about having, again, those processes of legal recourse and accountability. If you are in a standard employment contract and your employer wants to terminate that contract, there's a process, right? You have a system of warnings, you have a disciplinary, you are able to bring your union representative to that disciplinary with you. The employer is obliged to present a case as to why they are disciplining you. Now, obviously, that process is deeply flawed. It's not, you know, people have been unfairly dismissed from work for many different reasons, and we can have a whole conversation about that. It's not just about having human supervisors, it's also the time cost of fulfilling those obligations as an employer. So obviously you have the monetary cost of like paying into a pension fund, of covering someone when they're sick, of covering someone when they have parental leave, but also the the kind of the, the, the time costs of fair work, essentially, you, those are eliminated when you outsource it to a management algorithm. Um, so that is a huge kind of like cost, that's a huge sort of savings in labor. But that that question of like, hyper availability I think is also really crucial because what is so important and what makes the the workforce so fungible and so disposable is not only the 
ease with which people are fired, but also the ease with which people are hired. So you need to have this sense of like, and every Uber driver that I that you speak to has an inherent sense that to the company, they are disposable. That like, if they lost their job tomorrow, Uber wouldn't feel the difference. If they stopped working tomorrow, there would be a line of other workers that could easily be on- onboarded with very little processing. That again is not a typical kind of employment contract. That's where the kind of hyper availability comes through. And that acts not only as essential to Uber's success, but it's also central to, and by success, I mean success in kind of inverted commas very much, because let's not forget this model is not actually, it's based on speculation and it's like not actually a functioning model. Um, But that's what it's kind of been ticking on, ticking over through um, that particular logic. Not only the ease with which you can get rid of a worker, but also the ease with which you can onboard a new worker. And that is a central way of disciplining the person who is in the working relationship as well. Let's talk a little bit more about that disposability and that availability of a huge swaths of surplus labor of a surplus population that is ready and able to take the place of an uber driver should they be uh, disciplined for whatever reason should they have to quit because it's no longer compatible with their care needs whatever it happens to be because you draw this link between um how um people are rendered disposable and these economic processes of of racialization. Yeah, I mean, the concept of a surplus population is essentially about segments of the population that are ready and available that are that are not in that are unemployed or not in a work in an employment relationship and but are ready and available to enter the employment relationship as and when capital needs it right and this is important not only because this is important because um it functions as as an essential disciplinary mechanism for those in the employment relationship what i think is quite interesting with the rise of platforms that have not only very low threshold for sacking workers but also a low barrier of entry to onboarding workers is that you know and Saskia Sassen talks about this where she says that this iteration of capitalism essentially the underlying logic of it isn't so much inequality so it isn't so much this idea of like we've all ascended into this industrial working class, which is, you know, and that creates a very unequal society. Sure, that is that is true. We live in an unequal society. But actually this concept of expulsion and this concept of abandonment, you know, dispossession, and the fact that, that, that the, an increasing number of people who cannot enter employment or at least standard employment through any means, the platforms become incredibly... they thrive in that kind of environment and I think that for me there is a real emergent relationship between displacement and dispossession as a central logic of our economy and platforms as both providing a space in which those people are able to gain a wage or where they otherwise may not be able to, where they are exempt from state public services, for example, or where they are unable to enter the regular labor market. But essentially it is of course a double-edged sword because the other side of that is often 
indebtedness and, you know, precarity and essentially a sense that you are in a job that is a ticking time bomb in that it's only a matter of time before the algorithm will deduce that you have made too many mistakes. Obviously, what those mistakes are is never fully transparent and you will be kind of expelled from that relationship. And another thing that allows Uber to wield so much power is the fact that unlike, for example, minicab, industry, minicab offices, if you lose your job at a minicab office, which, you know, minicabbing wasn't necessarily a very secure job, but if you lose your job at one minicab office, you can go a few neighborhoods down and get a job at a different minicab office. Whereas with Uber, they have accrued such power in the sector that if you are what they call deactivated from Uber, yes, there's Bolt, yes, there's Free Now, but the clientele is just not there. You cannot make the kind of money that you need to make to keep up with your car payments, to keep up with your living expenses, to pay the bills without being on that platform. And so there's just this huge amount of centralized power um, that Uber is able to command that enables it to kind of like to to really capitalize and exploit the fact that increasing numbers of people are being expelled from the means of survival, whether that is, you know, state run public services or, you know, the standard model of employment, which is contracting and has been contracting significantly, um, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis. It feels very... Um horribly, tragically appropriate that uh, Uber arrives in London uh, the same year where the hostile environment means mm. that uh, fewer and fewer migrants have uh, recourse to public funds, right? Mm. That people just don't have the same kind of safety net, which would give um, people a little bit more bargaining power, mm. right? A little bit uh, more <laughs> of an ability to refuse uh, these, these working conditions. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what um, on those processes of expulsion, on how people are, are made uh, vulnerable yeah. by um, the border, these uh, economic processes of racialization. Yeah, and this is where it becomes really difficult to think about what the concrete demands are here, because obviously there are demands of Uber, right? For example, there are demands of worker status. There are demands about um, transparency around the algorithm and things that Uber specifically as a company can deliver on. But there's also these broader systemic questions of, as you said, like what coerces someone into taking a model that is as exploitative and and unsustainable as Uber. And these systemic factors lie not just at the heart of Uber as a company, they lie at the heart of a shrinking welfare state, um, the use of immigration regimes as a way of denying access to a welfare state to um, racialized migrant people, um, and also the failure of our broader economic system to provide everyone with the means of survival, right? And this is what we see with the with the financial crisis is vast waves of the population spat out of that employment contract that would guarantee them, that is supposed to guarantee them sick leave, parental leave, all of these things, that contracts because of a failure of our economy. And that creates the conditions by which a company like Uber with its exploitative model can thrive. And so... This is where, you know, the, the demands around the platform economy 
have to stretch beyond just things like employment contracts and have to stretch beyond things like the platform itself, but actually look at a systemic question of why is it that under capitalism, there is always this racialized group of people and that what that racialization looks like varies according to geography, according to history, whatever. But what is why is there always this this class of people that are created to be highly exploitable through processes of racialization. And that's the key. That has to be, and that's a question that we've asked before Uber, and it's a question that we have to still continue to ask um, when it comes to Uber. And that's why, um, you know, when we look at campaign demands, it has to be about things like, as you mentioned, border regimes, migrational policy, um, and welfare state, you know, the public sector, as well as demands and 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 critiques that are specifically directed to platform companies it really does give the lie to the silicon valley puffery about mm. economic progress happening as a sort of series of technological innovations that mm. a few great men sort of stumble into mm. by dint of you know their pure genius i was wondering if you could uh, i guess talk a little bit more about what your research has, has led you to think about that relationship between these 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 supro- supposedly private enterprises and state violence more broadly. Mm. Yeah, I think that one of the kind of central myths of a digital economy, and one of the reasons that a lot of investors get always get really excited about about the and venture capitalists get really excited about the idea of, of of a digital economy is it conveys this idea of like weightlessness and deterritorialization and this is where you know I always say that like the fantasy of the driverless car like what's interesting to me about the fantasy of the driverless car isn't like whether or not driverless cars can actually happen and more about why are venture capitalists so invested in the idea of a driverless car and i think it's this it's this idea of like wanting to create wanting to to smooth the flows of like capital and to to unmoor the ability of capitalists to make money from the pesky problems of like human bodies being laborers and like state regulation and geography and all of these kind of like these sticky kind of context questions and that's the thing that they always want to sell to us is that the great thing about the internet is it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what gender you are, what race you are, you can, you know, you can like participate in the economy in a neutral way. And what I think is really important to remember is that at every single stage of the supply chain of a platform, whether you're talking about, you know, the minerals that are being mined in order to make smartphone technology, or you're talking about the kind of like the data entry that is used in order to make algorithms and to make the code for algorithms. Or you're talking about, you know, the Uber driver, the delivery rider who is doing the actual service that justifies the extraction of data or that is used in order to extract data and create net- the, the network effects where this value is, is extracted from. At every single stage, questions of territory, of body, of like friction are very, very alive and relevant. Land is being destroyed. People are being dispossessed. Human bodies are being exploited. And 
the thing about technology is that it off, it kind of like conceals that under this like glossy interface where you press a button and someone comes to your door and you're like, obviously alienation has always been a part of this process, but it just kind of gives this like this cultural story of technology is this kind of like neutral facilitator of exchange and this kind of like silver bullet to questions of inequality. And I think what I'm trying to really do is to really puncture a hole in that in a way that thinks of platforms as a supply chain, you know, like I said, from, from the mines to the kind of like the, the, the moving Uber driver or the moving delivery rider that we, that we see. And I think that story of technology has been so central in the speculative, because this is ultimately what Uber's valuation is based on. It's based on like what people expect it's going to do. Um, and is also the way that they get away with so much because they are able to say, well, we're not employees, we're a technology company. We're just providing infrastructure. We're just providing a platform through which two independent people can come together and make an exchange. And it's like, well, no, you're like directly shaping that labor relation and you're directly shaping like how, how it takes place, you know, and reorganizing the labor process in light of that. It's not an uncommon story, of course, that um, the immediate sort of last step in that global supply chain um, operates uh, through and in order to conceal uh, the global story behind it. Mm, right? mm. Um, you draw these links between how um, Uber is making its money, how similar platforms making its money today in the metropolis of London and a broader history of empire. Can you tell us a bit more about how those legacies of empire shape um, how work is organized in mm. on these platforms? Mm. So there's multiple different ways. There's the kind of very uh, kind of what we would say like kind of conventional way that we would think about how empire would inform these um, the platforms. So ranging from, uh, you know, the fact that the technologies that, enable us to actually have a platform economy rely on extractive mining which is obviously like a deeply colonial industry and it's deeply embedded it's probably i think one of the most well-preserved processes of colonialism that most typically look like what colonialism has always looked like um in the modern in in the contemporary moment um, to the fact that, you know, um, the call centers that Uber relies on, you know, when a Uber driver has a problem, when, you know, you want to get into contact with Uber, you're not getting in touch with someone who is headquartered in the Netherlands. You're getting in touch with someone who is in a call center in, you know, the Philippines and in India and places where, you know, call centers have been offshored to. Um, and so that kind of telecommunications infrastructure um, that a platform like Uber in a quite a traditional way, um, you know, relies on that kind of offshored labor. But I would say in the more kind of indirect historical way, you know, to me, what, what empire is, is it historically consolidates processes of racialization as a way of making vast swathes of the world's population available for exploitation and extraction. Um, and whether that is, you know, the extraction exploitation of natural resources of land or the ex exploitation and extraction of human labor um and the discourses and the 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 cultural scripts that essentially make that possible is what i is what has been historically articulated as race and so that that line is continuous 
from plantation to platform. And I think what we hear, what what tech, what the lie of technology is, is this idea that because it happens in the digital space or because it happens on the internet, that somehow it can be unmoored from those histories and it can be unmoored from that process of differentiation. Because, you know, um, I found this incredible quote from um, someone who was, I don't know if it was like the head of the NAACP or at least some high up, his name's Ben Jealous, which I think is a great name. Um, so, you know, kudos for he can get credit for that but um and he said you know that that uber is a great is a great equalizer because particularly in the u.s there's a history of you know black people not being able to hail cabs and there's this idea of like well if you're doing it through an app then it doesn't matter if you're you know you the the driver doesn't know what you look like and so it's going to be an equalizer in this way that there's this idea that if it happens in the internet space you can kind of shake off the kind of baggage of identity and the baggage of racialization. And I guess what my argument is, is that racialization still very much feeds into how these platforms create value and how they, ex they, how they exploit labor. It's just done in ways that are interesting and novel and unique, but that's always been true. In, when it comes to the history of race and capitalism, it's always been changing and it's always, racialization has always looked very different. Um, and I think how it appears in data-driven systems is is incredibly like interesting to me. How is that experienced differently um, in London, in that kind of you know, ancient uh, colonial <laughs> heart of, of commerce between um, more recent migrants and British citizens of colour who, you know, have that different relationship with the border, with the mm, British state, of mm, course. Mm. There's a kind of irony as a researcher sort of looking at this field, because on the one hand, I can't think of any workforce that has had more data extracted about them and on them. Um, you know, there's huge amounts, like we know like what these workers are doing, like, ev like where they are at every second of their working time. And yet, because it's all owned by these companies and it's kind of behind closed doors and that data is value in, for a lot of these companies. And so they will never be made, it will never be made transparent. Um, it's actually impossible to, to have a breakdown of data of like actually who makes up the Uber workforce. So we actually don't know the balance of like recently arrived migrants versus people who have a history of migration and, you know, racialized minorities. But like from my research, um, and from talking to people, what I I think what we see is amongst recently arrived migrants, um, a a greater difficulty in navigating what little systems of support are available, um, and also increased likelihood of being excluded from the the. Um, excluded from the platform at a later point. So what I've often found, for example, is one thing that Uber has, for example, is, you know, this, this client driven or customer driven rating system. So you know how like every time that you get an Uber, you, you rate the, the worker or you can leave a complaint or whatever. And that feed that's logged and it's fed into a broader profile of the worker. And so then when a driver is, deactivated he's then given like a list of all of the complaints that have ever been made against him and this has been used to inform his management decision what I have found is that like a lot of the time the kind of conflict and 
frustration and anger that, that passengers unleash on workers, which they can do not only interpersonally, but they do through the rating system and through the complaint system, happens as a result of things like language barriers, as well as kind of like the particular kinds of racism that um, recently arrived migrants would face that is like somewhat distinct you know, it's not it's not completely separate, but it is different from, you know, someone who would have like an English accent or a Scottish accent or let's just say a British accent would have. So I think that kind of like the difficulty in navigating existing systems of support, lack of access to those existing systems of support, difficult, you know, the, as you said, with the hostile environment, fewer and fewer recently arrived migrants have access to things like unemployment benefits and you know, council housing. And so they are stuck in this model and unable to leave it. Um, but, and and then, yeah, and then also like increased conflict and risk of abuse and violence as a result of, of language, language barrier. And also not to mention that every year TfL seems to raise the, the Transport for London, which is the regulator, seems to just like raise the threshold for like English language proficiency to hold on to your license, which is obviously incredibly difficult because you have people who are have been working as Uber drivers for six, seven years and now have to sort of, they might not have written English, for example. They might be perfectly able to do their job in spoken English, but suddenly they have to be able to pass a GCSE English language exam um, in order to continue holding their license. And these are all ways of essentially like creating precarity in the workforce. It is so striking the way that um, Uber and you know many similar platforms sell themselves as a kind of um, a way of mediating violence or a sort of a proxy for um, other kinds of ways of conferring safety in uh, an urban centre that's often portrayed as inherently dangerous, right? But when you kind of read your research, the thing that jumps out at me is is how much uh, fear that people exist mm. in if you want to undertake this work or if you're forced yeah. to undertake this work. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that this is really um, central to what I'm working on now, which is this idea of, as I said before, you know, one of the central promises of um, of platforms and of digital economy in general and the reason that it is so appealing to venture capitalists is this idea of frictionlessness right this idea of frictionless exchange um and the ability to kind of like to enter a market without you know without having to to build factories or build infrastructure or build things that are expensive and if it doesn't work out you can just kind of leave easily and one of the those one of those promises of frictionlessness is the idea is the promise is also a promise made to us as consumers, right? So I can be anywhere in the city and I can like press a button and a nanny will be at my doorstep or a Uber or a, a mini cab will be at my doorstep or someone can deliver me food or my groceries or whatever. And it's this idea of like ease and convenience and immediacy. And in reality, what's happening, though, is that infrastructures can never be frictionless. And what is instead happening is that friction is being shifted onto the worker and absorbed by the worker. And one of the ways that happens is the fact that one thing that the platform does that really transforms the labor process is it multiplies interactions, right? So if you were a nanny pre, if you're a nanny that's not working on an app, you have, you know, maybe one or two schools that you work in. You have maybe a, like 
may let's say maximum of like a dozen families that you work for and there's a kind of sense of like that the scale is somewhat kind of manageable in that sense and you get to know people and you get to understand the way that people work whereas when you're a nanny on an app you know some of the nannies that I've spoken to in my work they have nannied for a hundred families um in the course of a year so it multiplies interactions and therefore multiplies the the risk that workers face right because you're not just driving around people in the local community that you probably know fairly well you're not just looking after the kids of families that you are in your local community you are un, you are having to interact and deal with so many different clients in order to make ends meet and what inevitably happens as a result of that is conflict is disagreement is misunderstanding is all of the things that happen when two human beings come together and try to kind of exchange something especially when you're talking about something like looking after a child or looking after an elderly relative but the platform creates that multiplication of risk but takes no accountability or responsibility for what that might do to the worker and so what we see um from a worker's perspective is an incredible absorption an incre- like a scaled up absorption of the risk that has always been present in this kind of work you know mini cabbing like racialized work the work that's done by racialized people has always been the most dangerous work mini cabbing looking after children you know obviously nannies and domestic workers are at increased risk of sexual violence etc and what platforms do is by multiplying the scale at which workers are having to to work to make ends meet and yet they are so they are exposing their workers to more risk than before and yet providing very little in the way of protection from that risk when you're talking about how um, labour after the crash is kind of being restructured along racial lines through these platforms, your focus has been drawn to two main case studies, Uber, of course, and nannying. So what was it about these two sectors that you found kind of informative and urgent to talk about? Well, I was interested in these two sectors because... Firstly, I thought it would be really interesting to analyze two sectors that are in very different stages of platformization. So in like with Uber, you have like the minicab industry is all but the takeover is complete. You know, this is a very advanced stage um, of platformization. There is a monopoly situation where, you know, you have one platform that is very much at the top of the, the the food chain. Whereas with nannying and childcare, it's much earlier on in the stage of development. And so I was kind of quite interested in looking at how, how platformization looks very different at different stages of taking over a particular sector. But the main reason I was interested in it is because I'm very interested in this idea of infrastructure, um, not only from a r- racial capitalism perspective historically, and that like, why is it that the the infrastructural workers have historically been racialized, um, but also because I'm interested in that in turn into why platforms are particularly successful in these infrastructural service labor markets. And so I was interested in bringing those two things into conversation with one another, not for a straightforward comparison, but to basically ask a broader question about like what is happening to the infrastructures of our cities and 
how can the analytic of infrastructure connect what is how how can it connect what we are what is happening in two sectors that have very different kind of like histories right that have very in many ways have very different histories but have this shared history of being a racialized infrastructural labor force and i think what i wanted to do is like and it's experiment it might not work out but like <laughs> what i wanted to do was i kind of wanted to make a broader comment about how this isn't just about the policies and the activities of individual platform companies but rather that this is a systemic shift that is happening within infrastructural labor forces that is new and interesting in different ways but is also deeply rooted in a history of infrastructural labour that racial capitalist theory can tell us a lot about. Um, and also, I think from a political perspective, you know, that's all kind of very like research and academic. But from a political perspective, I'm interested in like, can a new political subjectivity of platform worker emerge as a way of creating shared interests and shared lines of organising between, you know, minicab drivers and sex workers and childcare workers and couriers that otherwise, you know, would have been quite difficult to, you know, it would have been maybe perhaps more difficult at a different time to see the connections between them, even though I think they've always been connected. But I wonder, I'm interested in the idea of like, can that, can that develop? Essentially, that's the, that's the question that from a political perspective, I'm quite interested in. I would love to hear more about that connection that you make between um, Uber drivers and um, domestic workers and nannies as both part of this fundamental infrastructure of like how a city mm. operates. We're mm. so often trained to think of care work as something that is kind of less properly economic than mm. other forms of exchange. Yeah, and I guess this is um, also a kind of central in trying to kind of bring um, domestic work into that. Um, the conversation of infrastructure is also an intervention that I'm trying that I'm trying to make, and I think that the fact that platforms operate so well, because ultimately, what's interesting about infrastructural labour is that it's invisible. Um, which obviously dovetails very neatly with the way in which racialization renders certain populations invisible or very or or if they are visible they're visible in a very toxic and destructive way um they tend to be hyper visible for example in the context of a moral panic or whatever um so i think that kind of like the fact that platforms have have been so successful in the in these particular industries connects them in a way that like we have tried to artificially break them apart which is exactly the way that you in the way that you outline where it's like this idea of like care work being seen as not economic in the way that like, you know, minicabbing or traditional or transport work might be seen as. But the fact that platforms have been so successful in these particular industries tells us that there's something connecting them. There's something similar. And it's that politics of invisibility, that politics of concealment and that politics of um, disposability um, that I think you know, is the platforms are inadvertently giving us a way to kind of like identify those as shared strategies between these different kinds of labour. That's one of the hallmarks of the kinds of racialized infrastructural work that you're discussing, being essential, being disposable and being 
invisible. So what is the kind of the, the nature of, of that connection between like the racialized workforce and the infrastructural mm. workforce mm. in your eyes? Well, it's a central it's a central contradiction, right? Because how do you reckon with the idea that this group of people are people that are absolutely essential to the functioning of your life and the ascent and the functioning of your city, and yet at the same time dehumanizing them as disposable and unwanted like how do you and that's a central contradiction that racialization has always tried to resolve and I think it comes through so heavily in like work around like sort of slavery and and care right and how sort of like obviously yes you had enslavement which involved like in you know manual labor and we think about cotton fields but we also have to remember that slavery was also about providing care labor um and it's this idea of how can you on the one hand designate a group of people as, you know, uncivilized, as unintelligent, as, you know, lazy, as as inferior, and yet give them the incredibly intimate and essential role of like raising children, raising your children. And it's like that contradiction um, is resolved through racial hierarchy. And it's resolved through the idea that, you know, the power to set your conditions is wholly held in the employer. And I think, and, and in the, the the very mutable and adaptable discourses that racialization gives us. And I think that when we look at, um, when I look at kind of like the, the app-based care work that I'm looking at, that I'm looking at, the ability of employers to like cancel a job in the middle you know, to get rid of a worker in the middle of a job, to cancel on a worker, like when they're at the doorstep, that is a way of resolving the fact that like, on the one hand, this is a workforce that, you know, is deemed to be like, is categorized as like illegal and, you know, all of these very threatening words and threatening frameworks. And yet it's being brought into the most intimate labor that like you can imagine. And the, the ability to wield that kind of like, the ability to render them disposable and on the terms of the employer is central to resolving that contradiction. Yeah, it almost seems like the the algorithmic management that platforms offer is a way of helping police those racial boundaries when they are kind of both their most important mm. and their most um threatened if you like mm. there's this uh, implicitly intimate connection between you know mm. someone who is raising your kids for you or someone mm. who is like taking you home when mm. you might be in a vulnerable situation mm. and where those kind of contradictions are kind of at their most mm. important mm. that's where the platform seems to kind of intervene and yeah. try and make things have the appearance of frictionlessness mm. and this is where i think algorithmic management is right is so heavily racialized because when you look at um you know, anyone who lives in London will know that there's been this like ongoing feud between TfL and um, Uber, which is a feud that is very much resolved at the expense of drivers and of workers. And one of the key ways that um, that, that Uber was able to retain its license was essentially by promoting its algorithm as 
punitive and carceral, right? So there was this idea of like one of the charges that TFL made against Uber was, you know, you're unsafe. Like this is an unsafe platform. And there wasn't this idea that it was unsafe to the worker. It was this idea, again, trafficking off these like these um, very racialized images of what Uber drivers are and the power that they hold by the fact that, that you know, there are some incredible quotes from like city hall meetings and stuff of people saying you know if you have like a bunch of uber drivers you know lined up outside of a um outside of a nightclub you know that could be terrorists that like if a if a policeman walked by they would just think it looked normal there was a sense of like oh it could be like terrorists in disguise who like will use their mo like use uber as a way to be mobile throughout the city which is obviously <laughs> absurd but um Jesus. but um but what uber came back to with that was like we have essentially a ruthless management algorithm that like if any complaint is made against a driver, we immediately deactivate them and we investigate them. Obviously, the pro the process of that investigation is basically un completely unknown. It's completely opaque. And that sense of like, we are deeply punitive and we are, we, we treat these workers as, you know, guilty until proven innocent is a central way in which Uber is able to, to was able to retain its license. And not only that, but also the fact that the Met Police was able to come out and say, you know, Uber is on the forefront of data sharing and is on the forefront of urban policing, that Uber is a central way and data sharing with Uber is a central way that we are is central to our policing strategy in the city. And so this kind of like promise to be carceral and punitive and to recognize their workforce as, again, risks that need to be preemptively and punitively managed is central to how Uber like creates legitimacy you know, which tells us, I think, so much about what's what's going on there. Can you tell us a little bit more about those changes that have happened more recently when Uber has been forced to give some concessions to the fact that it's actually maybe a little bit responsible for its workforce? Mm -hmm. So uh, workers recently won um, worker status in the Supreme Court. That was um, the, the ADCU recently won that. The ruling stated that the classification of Uber drivers as self-employed was not reflective of the actual reality on the ground and that actually they should be considered limby workers. So, which is, you know, there are three categories, employee, limby worker and self-employed. And the idea was that Uber drivers should be reclassified as um, limby workers. And with that has come some really important things. Um, I think just the recognition that that Uber rose to prominence in this way through an illegal strategy, I think was incredibly an incredibly important symbolic win. What we're seeing right now is Uber essentially trying to weasel its way out of what the Supreme Court had legislated for, right? So for example, the Supreme Court said that time spent plugged into the platform waiting for work should be considered working time and therefore should be compensated. That would be absolutely catastrophic for Uber's business model if it had to pay every driver for the time that they are spent waiting for a job because the the model relies, you know, the on-demand model relies on the idea that there are always more workers than jobs. So that whenever you open your app and wherever you are, there will be someone who 
is available to come to you on demand. And so the idea that you would pay workers for that would be incredibly, it would, I just, I, like, it would be incredibly destructive to the model. So they've, despite the, the Supreme Court ruling stating that it should be considered working time, they've just chosen not to, to take that on board. Um, and you also have like, essentially, well, essentially the question is very open as to how, how is Uber going to rework its model in light of these changes? And that's dependent on the extent to which those changes are enforced, which is a political decision. Um, and, you know, I think at the moment we're not, you know, we're seeing some, we're seeing things like the minimum wage and we're seeing like provisions around sick pay, which are incredibly important. Um, but some of the key things that would be really transformative, um, things like working time, are still not being, are still essentially just being ignored. And that that's a question of enforcement and political will. Your research and activism has brought you into contact with how workers on these platforms are organising to demand greater rights, greater pay, uh, more parity with, um, I guess, regularized workforces what does that look like right now i think actually the the nannies and au pairs have been really interesting and instructive here so nannies and au pairing have always been around you know they weren't this wasn't a work a form of work that was invented by um by platforms and it's always been a very basically completely like no, there's been no regulation. It's seen as, you know, something that happens in the home, which is a space obviously considered outside of the market and therefore shouldn't be within the reach of employment regulation. So there's always been a problem of like this workforce not having any labor protections. I think what I found really interesting is that now we have the Nanny Solidarity Network, which is the first union that has been, that organizes nannies and au pairs in the UK as far as i'm aware historically you know childcare workers have been unionized before and are being unionized but largely childcare workers associated with like nurseries or some kind of institution but like home based domestic workers um childcare workers have not been historically unionized in this country and the union was developed um, during the furlough scheme. So you have a few nannies, you know, the vast majority of nannies are not on standard employment contracts. They're not on PAYE contracts. But you have a small number of them that were on PAYE contracts, which meant that they were eligible for furlough. And so for the first time in their working life, they had the space and time and resources to actually unionise. And so, the, so a few nannies in London used that time to established the Nanny Solidarity Network, which is really looking at, um, it's organizing app-based and non-app-based um, childcare workers, but it very much is looking at like, it, it's, it's very oriented around that kind of expansive and holistic idea of what a labor right is. And so you will see like migration rights and, you know, anti-hostile environment stuff as centrally conceived within their idea of what it means to be labor organizers. And you also have, you know, a heavy investment in mutual aid. So, you know, because so many nannies are undocumented, you know, you can't just take employers to tribunals because like these workers are undocumented. So you can't, the court is not going to be a place where they can get their you know, stolen wages or get recourse for legal, like they can't, they don't have access to legal recourse. So this question of like mutual aid and community building is a key site through which um, 
you know, not only community is being built, but actually through the 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 restitution of wrongs is taking place is is incredibly is is incredibly interesting. And I but it's very difficult when you're a precarious worker to have the kind of financial stability and time and breathing space to unionize. And so I think the furlough scheme gave birth to a lot of really interesting organizing in these particular sectors because it was the first time you kind of got the space to do so. How do you think we start drawing um, lines of solidarity, building those practical lines of solidarity between workplaces that are more regularized mm. and that are more white, basically, mm. that um, have often um, kind of understood the workforce, the British workforce, as something that is a white entity and that's protected mm. by borders? Mm. I think what I would say is like, it's going to come for you eventually, <laughs> you know? I mean, and and I did a piece of work that was drawing comparisons between, um, it was a piece of research where I spoke to, to, to lots of different workers and I was comparing emerging conditions in academia with childcare workers um, and at, particularly app-based childcare workers. And what I found was like, you think of academia as this incredibly sort of white professional you know well unionized kind of like safe industry right it's like the height of kind of a professional industry right and you think of it as being kind of shrouded by that that protection but what you're seeing is like the kinds of worker management strategies that we are seeing sharpened and developed and finessed in parts of the workforce that are invisible that are considered disposable that are considered um that are out of public purview partly because of racialization that these techniques are going are are growing upwards and that's how racial capitalism has always worked it's always sharpened its tools and the bodies at the margins and then expanded those techniques and strategies upwards so essentially and the perfect example of this are black cabs and Uber drivers. At the beginning of, you know, when Uber first came onto the scene, there was, it was very much, there was a lot of investment in stoking up a war between, you know, black cabs and Uber drivers and framing it as a war between, you know, traditional white working class industry and um, this, you know, undercutting migrant workforce. And these workers were pitted against one another and some really like not cool things took place, particularly from the black cab union. But what we're seeing now is that increasingly the kinds of strategies that are used against Uber drivers, not just from the side of, the, of Uber as a company, but also from the side of the regulator are now being used against black cab drivers, right? And so things like, you know, in an increasing number of black cabs are now being ordered through apps and are now being subject to ratings-based management, which is, again, linked to heightened precarity. And it's like, if you had had solidarity from the beginning and protected Uber drivers from these kinds of precarious working conditions, then the tools wouldn't be so sharp now that they're coming for you. And there's this sense of like the incentivization of this kind of like white working class versus migrant worker essentially meant that like white working class industries were coerced into supporting 
measures that made being an Uber driver harder and harder in an attempt to try and squeeze Uber out of the sector. Because it was seen that if we squeeze these workers, if we push them outside of the sector, then we'll be safe. But actually what makes you protected and what makes you safe is by ensuring that no worker is treated in the way that you don't want to be treated. And that that's, go, that's true for Uber and black cabs. It's true across the entire economy. And on that rousing note, I think that's where we will leave it. Dalia Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support. Or face the consequences.